You are listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. One of, if not the most, difficult command in all of the scriptures is in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Talk about one of the most difficult commands to obey. Love your enemy. Can you think of an enemy? Somebody that doesn't like you very much? Um, teenagers, especially, there'll be more of them here late hour. They'll be able to think pretty quick about some people at school that they would say, we're just kind of at this right now. But you might be able to think of one right now that you might think of somebody, maybe it's somebody uh, in person, um, very specifically that you can think of. Maybe it's like there's some public figure that you guys feel like this person just hates me or people like me and they'd count themselves an enemy of the cross, an enemy of Christianity. Um, think about that person and remember the command, love your enemy. Now he says, you heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say, love your enemies. And notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say it is written. In other words, Jesus here is not telling them, he's not saying, you know, the Old Testament said this, it was written in the old law, but now I'm giving you something new. What seems to have happened is the Old Testament is pretty clear. Love your neighbor, love your enemy. That's not just something in the New Testament. What seems to have happened is this. He says, because you've heard it said, just love your neighbor and you can hate your enemy. And it seems like what he's doing is um, the bar of loving your enemy was too high and it wasn't working. And so you get to about the first century. And so what happened was the Pharisees and the teachers of the law started to take this Old Testament ethic about love your neighbor, love your enemy. And they started to say, that's too much. Let's lower the bar. And let's say, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And so what Jesus is doing, he's not giving some corrective to something the Old Testament said. He says, this has been God's plan all along. What he is saying is he's saying what has seeped into the culture now is people have started to say, eh, it's really just love your neighbor, love your neighbor, love your neighbor, love your neighbor. Don't worry about loving your enemy. And Jesus is going to come and say, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I'm saying, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Some think this was a concession. I agree that this was, this was something in the culture that was like a concession. Like, well, we're not hitting the bar that the Old Testament has set, so let's just lower the bar. And guess what? They, they still didn't hit that. And so you can see over time, this is how it works. You just keep lowering the bar, and Jesus says, hang on, I'm putting the bar right back where it's supposed to be. The command of God to his people are to love your neighbor and love your enemy. Notice he doesn't just say, don't hate your enemies, because you could do that maybe, like just sort of be indifferent towards your enemies. Just don't say mean things. He says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And this, is, this idea of love your enemies, it, it really is, it's like a, just a beautiful sentiment if you think about it. It just seems like a nice thing to say, love your enemies. But I would say in Christian circles, this has become the most justified sin to hate our enemies in spite of what the scripture teaches. Nietzsche said this, Nietzsche said, the love of one's enemy is weakness and dishonesty. You have an enemy, why would you turn around and love them? That is weak. You have an enemy that doesn't like you, when you are kind in return, you're being dishonest, you're being a liar in how you're behaving towards them. 
But I have to say, love your enemies is so, so, so vital, especially in the time in which we live today. I think we can see that. There's a, um, the Albert Einstein Institution. Uh, there's a guy there, Gene Sharp's a guy who founded it. They're, they do nonviolent um, activism, and so they teach and train activists. And here's what they say. He says, it is not necessary for activists to express love for their opponents in order for activists to achieve their desired policy changes. Instead, those in power can be forced by public pressure to concede to popular demands. The mode of influence in our culture is no longer loving your enemies. The mode is, why would you take the time to love your enemies? Put pressure on them. Guilt is the way that it works today. And so the reason I think this is so necessary is if you think about it, if you only love those who love you, love never begins. Have you thought about that? If I'm just going to love you if you are loving towards me and you're going, well, I'm just going to love you if you're loving towards me, then we'll just sit there like this. And you go first. Oh, you were loving. Good. I'll be loving back. Oh, now you weren't so loving, so now I'm not going to be loving. Oh, I wasn't very loving just then. Okay. And at any moment, the cycle stops and the cycle would never, ever begin unless there is a call to say, love your enemies. And that's the call on the life of the Christian. Someone has to start it and it starts with us. That's what the Bible's going to teach. Um, Tertullian in the second century said this. He said, our individual extraordinary and perfect goodness consists in loving our enemies. To love one's friends is common practice. To love one's enemy is only among Christians. In doctrine and in spiritual practice, only the followers of the scripture love their enemy, are mandated to love their enemy. And so we talk about love your enemy, and that's not a new topic. It's usually one that, that you know, comes up and people go, oh, he's going to talk about love your enemy again. But I don't know how often people talk about how do we love our enemy. And that's what I think Psalm 70 is actually going to talk about. And I think it's a little hidden. And so I want to show you in here why I think this is really a love your enemy type text. It shows you the goal of love. Love's ultimate goal in the life of our enemy and someone, someone that, that is hostile towards us, how do we respond, how do we behave, and what is the ultimate goal that we should have as we love them? That's what Psalm 70 is going to address. So let me set this up. It's a very short prayer. It's five little verses, and that's it. In fact, these five verses are also in Psalm 40. They're embedded in a longer psalm in Psalm 40, and I'll reference that here in just a minute. The context here is David has enemies that are closing in on him, uh, and they are wanting him dead. And that's when he says, make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Twice in the opening uh, verse, he says, make haste, make haste. And you're going to see this in five verses, four different times, David is going to say, make haste. Save me now. Help me now. Hasten to me. He says, do not delay. David is in a spot where he has enemies closing in that want to take his life, and he is saying, Lord, could you help me and help me now? This is really difficult to, and you'll see how this plays out, but to love your enemies, to keep on loving your enemies when you're just feeling like, come on, God, do something. Like the more it drags on, the more I'm ready to think on their sins, to ignore my own sins. And so I'm like, Dave, I'm going, 
God, boy, if, if this happened quicker, this would be a lot easier for me. Make haste, make haste, hurry to me and to save me, God. I think this is uh, one thing I'll note. This is different from David demanding that God uh, save him now. This is very different from him going, God, save me and save me now. This is really David going, I'm in trouble here and I'm gonna acknowledge, God, you are the only thing that is gonna help me get through this because I in my flesh, I'm not going to love my enemies. I'm gonna fight back against my enemies. I'm gonna try to kill these enemies. I'm gonna want bad things for these enemies. And so he is crying out and he's saying, make haste, hurry, come now. But he's not demanding of God that he could do it. Saying, God, do it and do it now. It's the only illustration I could come up with. Suppose my children are in the bathroom and the toilet starts to overflow. And they just start crying out and going, dad, dad, dad. I'm designated plunger in my house. And if they just start going, dad, dad, and they just start like crying out for dad, there's nothing in them going, dad, get in here. It's their fault. Like they're the ones, that it's their, it's their mess, it's their problem, but they're crying out and they're saying the only hope we have is if the holy plunger comes in and he helps us out through all this. And so they start crying out, dad, 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 come in, hurry, 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 hurry. And what they are asking for is I need your help as opposed to get in here and get in here now. It's a terrible illustration, I won't use that second hour, but you get the point. You'll remember it, I know. Okay, there you go. All right, we'll move past that one. Uh, Verse two, he says this about his enemies. He says, let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. And here's what he just said. He said, God, these enemies of mine are really enemies of you. And he says, let their sin catch up to them. Let their sin catch catch up to them. You know, I think of um, like adults, especially um, the people that come to faith late in life, a lot of times that's one of the things that's happening is there's just, the sin is just personally, privately just eating away at you. And it's, I have this sin, I need something to do with it. And in those quiet little places that we're not allowed to talk about, there's, I've got to do something with this. I need help. My, my rebellion against God is catching up to me. I'm, I'm at the end of my rope. And this is a prayer he's giving to say, God, let their sin catch up with them. Maybe those that look good on the outside internally are rotting away. Let it catch up to them. Let me just say, sometimes things will take a long time to be exposed, but I bet you every single person in this room will say over the age of, oh, I bet 30 would know this to be true, that sin catches up with you. Even in the moment, it might not feel like it does, you might think, I got away with it, but everybody with any life at all lived is going to go, sin eventually is found out, and sin eventually always catches up with us. I've had people I have not hired because, uh, this was back at another church, I have not hired because uh, I looked back at some of their old Facebook posts, and they were years ago. And I'm not going to describe them to you, but I saw them, and he came in to interview, and I asked about it, and he just sort of laughed it off. I thought, you're about to be up sharing the gospel with a bunch of teenagers. Something that you did years and years ago. Is there repentance? Is there change? I could see that, and and that could come up. And so that's why, like, man, the world of the digital world just sort of terrifies me. And I got three kids that are growing up. They don't know anything except they got phones, you know. The... 
I'm, I'm sending a text to somebody. We should assume that it's going to get found out. We have a friend um, that their son made a joke on a video game with a bunch of other friends that he shouldn't have made. And he had to go spend the night in prison for a couple nights. And his life will never, ever be the same. He shouldn't have done it. He was joking. I was joking. I didn't even mean it. I, I, they were all my friends. Like, why would that? It got found out. That's how sin works. So the options here that we have are, um, what do we do with this, the sin in our life, our private sin that will catch up to us? Number one is just never, ever sin. There's your application for today. Go away and never, ever sin, and we're done. So that's good. Here's another option. Spurgeon said it like this. He said, it is ill lying in bed when we have sin on the conscience. He that hath sin unforgiven should never travel slowly to the cross, but run to it. Option two is we go to the cross and we remember the forgiveness that we have in Christ. So David has just said, come and help. Take the enemy away from me. Turn them back from me. And then he says in verse three, he says, let them turn back because of their shame who say, aha, aha. This is like a, a mocking. Those that have come and mocked me, he says, let them turn back because of their shame. Okay. This is the verse that I think is talking about loving your enemies, and I want to show it to you. So I have to slip into sort of teacher mode for just a minute. Let me, let me put these two verses by each other. Verse 2 says, let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Then he says, let them turn back, see the same word, because of their shame. Those who say, aha, uh-huh, aha. Uh-huh. It seems like in verse 2 and 3, he's saying the same thing. However, give me just a moment to try and convince you. I think he's saying something slightly different. I think in verse three, the idea of saying, let them turn back, is the idea of saying, let them return to you, God. I'll show you why. I got four quick reasons. I told you I'll slip into teacher mode for just a minute, and then I'll come back and sum it up, okay? There, I'll give you four different reasons. First of all, if you look at it, it says, let them be turned back, and then it says, let them turn back. It looks the same in English. They're actually different words in Hebrew. Two different words in the Hebrew. And the second word is often translated in the Old Testament, repent. The idea of come back, I'm living a life away from God and now I turn and I come back to God. So it can mean like the enemy turn back, the military turn back, but it can also be used to come back to God. And it's interesting that I think David would choose this language when he just used the first word for turn back. He clearly knows it and then he switches it up for the second one. And I think there's a hint in what he's saying of saying, um, God, turn them back from me. And then he starts to say, God, turn them back but God also bring them to you. I think this is about loving your enemies. Let me just give you a couple examples. This, the second line, the word there um, is used to repent. Uh, it's used frequently in the Old Testament for God's people to repent. Uh, Zechariah 1, it has it like four different times, but also there's other times where you've got a, this idea of repenting and it's actually not even for Israelites. It's not even for people of God. It's just the idea of come back to God, like come back to the one who created you, the one who made you. It's in the story of Abimelech, the story of Elijah, but most notably, perhaps, Psalm 7 says, a man does not repent. The context is all the enemies of God, and he says, a man does not repent. God will wet his sword. 
He has bent and readied his bow. And it's that exact same word. It's the idea of someone who is a, is a follower of God or not a follower of God, repent and turn. And so I think David is using a bit of a double, that's reason number one, I think he's using a bit of a double meaning to say, yeah, turn them back for me. I already said that. Now I'm gonna use a different word to say, turn them to you. And it says because of their shame, but do you know that oftentimes in the Bible, shame, especially Old Testament, is something, it's a word that's used that can lead people to repentance. Over and over, Jeremiah chapter three, it says it. It says um, Jerusalem is impoverished. It says it lays in shame. And then they cry out, God, will you be angry forever? And then he says, return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. And then he says, return, turn back, repent, O faithless children, declares the Lord. Because of your shame, it should lead you to repentance. In other words, you should feel the weight and guilt in your life, and you know you need a solution, and so return to God. It says it explicitly in in Zephaniah, and I love how this is phrased. This is a great phrase. He says, I will change their shame into praise. I will change their shame into praise. It's the idea of the weight of our sin and the guilt in our sin. And God says he and he alone can take our shame and he can turn it into praise. And so I think what he's saying here in this verse, let them repent, let them come back. And their shame is something that can be used to have them repent. They can feel the weight of it and need a place to go. There's two other reasons. I'll give them quickly. I told you this is in the middle of Psalm 40 as well. And if you look at Psalm, uh, if you look at Psalm 40, you can see as it's in there, I think it much more naturally too implies the exact same thing. It's a slightly different word and it says, let them be appalled. Let them be appalled. And when you start looking at the other times in the Bible that that shows up, it starts talking about being devastated or being appalled. And God in Ezekiel 20, 26 says, I did it that they might know that I am the Lord. In other words, you see throughout the scriptures, you see this same word used to say the reason this is happening, the reason they should be turned back, the reason they should have shame and be appalled is so that they will know that I am the Lord. And then also, if you just keep reading the psalm, I think the fourth reason why this is a call for repentance is look what he says the next one in verse four. He says, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. When it says, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you, that word appears over 5,000 times in the Old Testament, and almost every time it's talking about Israel and then the nations around them. And so all that to say this, if that didn't make sense, if I wasn't clear, let me say what I'm saying. That David seems to be saying, God, I'm surrounded by my enemies. Turn them back from me. But God, would they feel the weight of their sin And would they turn back to you? I think there's a statement he's making. These people who want me dead, I want them to know you. It's a statement of wanting people to be moved to repentance. How do we love our enemies? Imagine if there is someone that you would count an enemy and if you started by thinking, I want them to know God, instead of, 
I want them to get what they got coming to them. What they did, I hope they get paid back for it, and I hope I get to watch it when it happens. I want this person to know God. Despite the harm they are causing me, I want them to know God. God, grab their heart. This is a heart issue, what's happening. Let me make this statement here, and I'll flesh it out. Loving your enemy starts with a desire to see them change and a belief that they can. Loving your enemy starts with a desire to see them change and a belief that they can. Those two pieces. A desire to see them change. Um, Sometimes we have to really come face to face with this. Do I really want my enemy to change? Or do I want them to just get what they have coming to them? We have to start by saying, God, I desire that this person would change and know you. They said this in 1 Thessalonians. Paul and Silas and Timothy were um, among the Thessalonians, and they said, <clears throat> they said, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you. And then they say, for your sake. Our character was for your sake. I don't love my enemies, so they will love me back. That's not the goal. I love my enemies so that they might love God. Totally different way of looking at it. And Paul and Silas and Timothy said, we were among you and we demonstrated our character and everything we did was for you. It was for your sake. That's how the Christian is supposed to live. Even, I have to say, like even, even, as David is saying, man, may their sin catch up with them in their shame. He still goes, and the end result of that is in their shame, in their guilt, would, God would somehow, would you use that to turn them back to you? Boy, that's a hard one. God, use the folly of their sin and the consequences that they have so that they might come back to you. It would be like this. It would be someone who is um, just saying, I am chasing every worldly pleasure. And a good prayer is to say, may that catch up to them so that they can see the emptiness of that and realize they need you. I think of the, <clears throat> for maybe young people, I think of like, who's the, the meanest kid in school that is just an enemy to everybody? Instead of going, boy, I hope he gets what's coming to him, this is a prayer. To say, at some point, his sin may catch up to him and he will be friendless. God, may I have open arms when nobody else does. Now that's difficult. <clears throat> Here's one way to think of it. I think I've told some of you, I, I did student ministry for years, and, um, and I, at first in my ministry, like we'd do a big old camp, and I would always get a little, a little upset. Listen to how petty this is. I would get upset because I would help set up the camp. I you know, would, would be in relationships with all these kids. I would get all the small group leaders and train them and everything, and there were a ton of kids, and so I, I would do a lot of that work. And then, and then they would come to faith in Christ, which is like, that's the reason why I want to do all this, is especially at that age to say, man, I want to see the light come on. And I would usually get do all this groundwork, and then some other you know, small group leader would come in at the 11th hour and go, so-and-so trust, wanted to trust Christ today for the first time. And I remember the first time that happened, so petty, I was like, huh. Like, I spent so much time, and then you got to be the one to do, like, and it's obvious, it's preposterous. It's all, we, we all do our different parts and don't demand where we need to be in the sequence of people's stories, of people's conversions. Sometimes the beginning of somebody's conversion experience is because they need to vent at a Christian 
and they need to watch that Christian not vent back. That can start to soften the hardest of hearts. And can I just tell you, don't be petty like me. Let's be content to say, if I need to be the person in their spiritual journey that all I am is loving my enemy, loving my enemy, loving my enemy, loving my, and their heart just starts to melt a little bit. God, if that's the role you have for me, that's what I'm here to do. That might be <clears throat> what we get. They need people sometimes that you, they unleash on you and you don't unleash back. But here's the other piece too, is we have to really have a belief that they can change. And what I mean by that is a belief that the Holy Spirit can do a work in their life. We, Christians can never just write somebody off. God, God knows who, who will trust him and who won't. We don't. We just go and we just love our enemies and love our neighbors and love and love and love. That, that's our job. That's our role. I love this. In Galatians, Paul talks about it. He says, <clears throat> they were talking about Paul. He says, they were hearing it said, he, that's Paul, who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. How about that? And then it says, and they glorified God because of me. Paul was persecuting the Christians, and now here he is, and his life has changed. And I'm just telling you, if we are patient to just say, I'm gonna love, 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 I don't know where I am in this person's journey, but what I want to do to love my enemy is I desperately want them to turn to Christ and to know him. Play the long game. And I know for some people you're going, I've been playing the long game for quite a while with some of them. Keep on going. Their heart might just be softening and you just don't have the eyes to see it yet. Maybe someday you can. Love people like crazy regardless of whether or not they extend love to you. Because if you do it and 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 I do it and we all are doing that, all of a sudden the Christian witness becomes undeniable. We are doing something that makes absolutely no sense. Why would we bother loving our enemies? Why wouldn't we just leave our enemies? Why wouldn't we lash back out at our enemies? And the only reason we have is because we know that we were an enemy of God, but Jesus Christ died for us and brought us close to him. <clears throat> I will also say, if you're gonna love your enemies and you want to bring them close to God, you've got to be there yourself. You've got to be close to God. If you're gonna have a place that you are going to bring them and you are going to lead them, then you be close to God yourself. In Luke 22, Jesus is being led away to be crucified and I love what he does. There's people following him and mourning for him and then he turns and he, if you remember the scene, he says, you need to worry about your own souls. Like, even in the midst of all this, and they are dragging him off, he turns around and he just yells this line of compassion, worry about your own souls. Like, check out what I'm doing and believe in me and believe in who I am. Like, even in that moment, and then of course you have the epitome of it when he's on the cross, and he says, Father, forgive them. The ones that are crucifying him, he is saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. This is what David is asking of God. He remembers his own sin, but I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. That's what happened in a, for us in our salvation. When you're wondering, how in the world can I love my enemy? Just think of this. Picture them 
someday, saying, I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help, my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. This is a great call to be a part of the mission of God on earth. Love your enemies.